Shalom, Baruchim, Habayim to everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the Bet Midrash for Parsha Vayikra. We are in a new Sefer of Torah this week, and I want to begin with dedicating this class to a lot of prayer requests that we have, specifically uh, for my son Ezra uh, and for Mr. Yosef Klein, and also for um, the Groffs. They have a neighbor. Uh, who's, it says their husband was just diagnosed with Alzheimer's, so um, praying for him, and then also would like to pray for the people in Ukraine, uh, a beautiful miracle that happened to a particular rabbi over there that was amazing, and I pray Hashem does many more of those, and also want to pray for the, the Russians in general, because there are Jews who are actually Russian and also for the Russians themselves that are a part of that actual um, continent and country. So uh, basically what we're seeing with the Ukraine situation is it is the Jews and the nations who really need prayer. And uh, there's a lot of unity that is coming forth. And I just want to, um, just lift all of this up in our prayer. So we will begin after our blessing, reciting Psalm 20. So if you want to have that prepared, and we will get underway. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu menach haolam asher kirishanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah v'harevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka b'finu ufi amka b'et Yisrael Venie anaknu, vetsa etsa enu, vetsa etsa yamka, bet Israel, Kulano yoder shemeka, velonde torateka lishma, Baruch ata aronai, hamlamet Torah, leamo Israel, Baruch ata aronai, Elohenu melekaolam, Asher bachar banu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato, Baruch ata aronai, notain ha Torah. We want Mashiach now. HaKadosh Baruch in the merit of our recitation of Psalm 20, we ask that you will hear our prayer, that you will send Mashiach speedily in our days and return us all to you in perfect repentance. Psalm 20, for the leader, a psalm of David. May Adonai answer you in a time of trouble. In the name of Yaakov's God, keep you safe. May he send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May he receive the tokens of all your meal offerings and approve your burnt offerings, Selah. May he grant you your desire and fulfill your every plan. May we shout for joy in your victory, arrayed by standards in the name of our God. May Adonai fulfill your every wish. Now I know that Adonai will give victory to his anointed, will answer him from his heavenly sanctuary with the mighty victories of his right arm. They call on chariots, they call on horses, but we call on the name of Adonai, our God. They collapse and lie fallen, 
but we rally and gather strength. O Adonai, grant victory. May the king answer us on the day we call. Adonai Hoshia Hamelek Yanenu, Vayom Korenu, Bishem Yeshua, King Yehiratzon. All right. So I want to begin tonight in Master Plan being back on schedule. Uh, chapter 17 is found on page 67. The cool thing about being back on schedule is this week we learn about the offerings. The cool thing about the offerings, these are a few of the drosh notes. I'm just going to go ahead and shout them out right now because it's in connection with the chapter, which I totally love that this always happens. So this is from uh, the Daily Wisdom that was brought on Yom Shani, which is Monday. And it says, the five types of animals. So note, there are five types of animals, just like five books of Torah, that could be brought as korbanot, as offerings. They were cattle, goats, sheep, pigeons, and doves. And isn't it amazing that the mother of the Mashiach brought turtle doves as her offering? And uh, I just think it's another point to the beautiful Midrash that's brought down about the Mashiach ben Yosef, who will be considered poor and humble riding on a donkey. So obviously we saw him riding on a donkey in the later chapters of the Gospels. We also saw his humility by not only the people that he ate with and also the people he was associated with and the people that he was always uh, keeping a, a lookout for. For instance, the widow who offered Daka in the temple and everyone else was offering all of these big offerings and she had the widow's might. And he heard her offering. And, you know, the young gentleman by the name of Zacchaeus, don't know his Hebrew name, but I, I imagine it's close to Zachariah. But um, the, the guy who was a tax collector, who was considered to be such a traitor to the role of a Levite, because as a Levite, you should not be working with the government to gouge people of their money, especially when it comes to their tithes. But... This individual had such a hard change, and Yeshua was like, tonight I will be at your house, which I thought was amazing because he was considered like, do not touch, do not associate, keep a 50-foot distance, you know, kind of thing, and Yeshua was all about that. And then you have the fact of his poor, not just in the, uh, in the sense of there's also the allegory of what poor means. It means poor in mitzvot. And it also means that the level of the generation that the Mashiach comes in is considered to be on a low level. So, but besides that, on a literal meaning, Yeshua ben Yosef was literally poor. And we see that he, he was even born and put in an animal trough, which, by the way, were made out of stones. So the manger was not necessarily this wooden crate, but it looked like uh, something you would grind up spices in. And so if you want to look up a manger from like the first century in Israel, I would encourage everyone to do that. It'll blow your mind what it looks like. It's just like, wow, Yeshua was placed in there. And to know that was connected with 
where they laid the lambs that would be offered in the temple, they wrapped them in swaddling clothes and put them in that same type of trough to keep them uh, blemish free. So Yeshua was literally born into that. And here we, here we go, having Yochanan, aka John, the immerser, calling Yeshua ben Yosef, the Lamb of God. <laughs> so it's just kind of like all these different connections. And then you see how it all flows together that, you know, from the, uh, the sheep, you have that that's one type of offering. You have his mother that offered the turtle doves, and then you have the goats and the cattle and the pigeon. So that was from the Daily Wisdom, and uh, I just thought it was awesome that there are five different animals that are offered up in the temple. And would you know it, Master Plan on page 67 is titled Respect for the Feelings and Instincts of Animals. Now, in Sefer Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus, we are about to go into crazy detail about offering up different types of animals that are mentioned right here. And wouldn't you know, it would seem so contrary and even contradictory to what we're actually reading as far as at its face value. It's like, why, if you're offering up an animal, how is that respecting its feelings? But when you understand what happens with the animal on the altar, it's not only a kindness to them, but it's also Hashem's kindness and mercy to us. Because part of the issue of bringing sacrifices in the first place was because we were so used to and prone to offering up animals and blood and even eating blood, but yes, that happened in our history. Uh, and offering them to other deities. This is one of the many tragedies of our being assimilated to a certain extent, not that all of us were, and not that we were completely assimilated, but to a certain degree, we were assimilated to the Egyptian lifestyle and the way of life and culture and, and immersed in so many things. This is one of the reasons why, particularly uh, commented that the heir of Rav were the individuals who said this, but specifically that the statement was made, we want gods like we had in Mitzrayim that we could parade around and that can go before us. And so when you look at the idea of idols, false gods and worship, strange worship, which is known as Avodah Zarah, which is a whole tractate about uh, strange worship or uh, alien service. And so, this is the things that we had to come out of with the Exodus. And this is the season that we're actually quickly approaching. Uh, we're in the month of Adar right now, and we're heading into Nisan. And so quickly after Purim, we're going to be right in Pesach mode. So it's going to be like a night and day change, like flipping a light switch. So anyway, a lot of people are getting prepared for that now. But all of that to say... How is it really that we're respecting animals' feelings and instincts, but yet we're called to offer them up? Well, let's read. This is another reason why I like this book, is that, you know, you can think of different topics and subjects that may be hard to wrestle with. And it's like, if you go to Master Plan, it gives you such a great foundation. And then, uh, as I always like to mention, the Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1 and Volume 2, 
are also a follow-up to that. So, uh, and right now, I know we're not really spending a lot of time in the handbooks, but uh, definitely continue to read and we reference them as much as possible as they come up. So page 67, it says relief of suffering, physical and mental and castration. And it goes on to say that you can see Exodus 23, 5, Deuteronomy 25, 4, and the Talmud Bavli, which is TB. And that's the Babylonian Talmud, typically the common Talmud that's used anytime you read it or see it referenced, unless it says Yerushalayim or Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, and that is Hagiga 14b. So first section says, God has delivered animals into our power only for fulfilling humane and wise purposes. So one of the things that we immediately have to think of as we think in general about animals, but specifically as we're entering into our studies in Baikra, I know we've read about offerings before, like for the uh, offering of the Pesach lamb during Parsha Bo and uh, the different offerings that were done for the inauguration of the tabernacle as we read in Truma and Tzave and so on and so forth. Um, and then even in Parsha Kitisa, when uh, Moshe cut up the golden calf and ground it up, and we had to partake of that. So, I mean, that's crazy. But anyway, it says, as soon as we go beyond this and become insensitive to the physical or mental pain of animals, we become tyrants and torturers. It makes no difference whether this is out of thoughtlessness self-interest to satisfy a whim or chasve shalom, which is God forbid, for the satisfaction of crude sadistic desire. Mazalto, Elizabeth, that you got the handbooks this week. Also, Linda got them as well. So uh, mazalto to her. So everybody who's getting those books, Baruch Hashem, it's, it's going to really enrich your life. Um, this is a quick note. I don't, I want to say this now, just in case I forget that I know we mentioned a lot of topics, sources, resources, and things like that. And you may feel like, my gosh, it's hard to keep up. How much time is there in a day? Well, I want to, first of all, encourage everyone that there's a lot that we know, and there's a lot that we don't know. The beauty of being Jewish and Torah observant on top of that is that we have the rest of until Hashem calls us home to really learn and glean from everything and put it into practice. Because the worst thing that we could do is read all this and store it all up and listen to drosh after drosh and never implement it, never organically bring it out and share it in our lives. So the encouragement is as we are going through everything, and as you get those little moments, those little uh, excerpts, those pages, those chapters of each of these sources, and every week as you're studying, please pray and, uh, and meditate and bring it into your neshama and cause it to truly be rooted into your life so that you are uh, thorough in your intake and your partaking of everything. Because like I said, you know, you could just fly through all these books, but if it never gets inside of you, 
that's kind of a waste of time on one level because if if we know on a um, micro, maybe a quantum level, even everything that we see and, and take into our lives, we know it sticks with us in our subconscious. But things that we want to consciously remember, we have to work at that. So I want to just say, take pleasure in the journey. Never stop learning. And yes, if you feel behind, as long as you're moving, that's incredible. And keep everything rooted and uh, as you go, don't don't just let it fly out of one ear or fly out of your vessel. Keep it there and enjoy it because we all have these different pieces that we are going to specialize in because that's the other goal in our learning. Find what we what really draws us to Hashem, what really pulls us close and anchors us in and stick with that. You know, like for me, I know halakhically. I, I can't really do it. I can't go to the super stream depths of Palaka. But when it comes to Gematria, a little bit of Midrash and things like that, all day, bread and butter. And so I try to glean as much as I can all around. But I know when it comes to that, that's where I'm going to hang my hat, you know. And maybe you can do more, but, you know, at least have that one particular thing that you're very thorough and diligent with. So hopefully... That was helpful information, and I will continue now. So when we look at the fact of animals being in our care, Hashem gave us dominion over them, we have the understanding that we really need to pay attention. You know, when you bring your Corbin to the Bet HaMikdash, to, and when we brought it to the Mishkan in the wilderness, that before we selected our animal, there were a whole lot of other steps that had to take place. You know, which type of offering are we doing? Why are we doing it? You know, do we have the ability to do it? When is the next possible availability to do that? Because guess what? If we're in the middle of traveling, the Mishkan is closed. We're not able to go to the altar, to the Kohen and all of that, you know, and things like that. If it's sundown, can't go to the temple to bring your offering because it's closed. It's Levites only on duty and all of the stuff that didn't get uh, placed on the all of the offerings that didn't get placed on the altar during the day. That's when they're placed on the offering or on the altar so that that way those uh, Corbin oak can go up as well. So, you know, timing, thoughtfulness and things like that. So if you're already before you even touch your animal or think about or look at your animal, you already have like this beautiful momentum of focus and intentional, uh, intention, what is it called? Intentionality? I don't know. You have great intention right now. Intentionality, I think, is the word. But yes, so that way, when you are uh, handling and uh, ultimately using this animal as a Corbin, that you're going to do it in the most upright possible way. And this also goes into animals that you will be partaking of as meals. Because one of the craziest things in our society is that there isn't much thought about what happened to a particular animal when we go up to the, the counter or to the freezer section and buy our meat. Whenever think about, well, I don't know, most, I don't know how all of us shop, but I don't want to say everyone doesn't think. But is the thought really there? Was this animal properly cared for? 
you know, and the fact that I'm going to eat this meat now means that I will be ingesting the, the quality and the characteristics of this particular animal, which is the whole reason why when we get into Parashash Mini, you'll be able to see in the insights. This is why Hashem gave us a strict diet that we're to eat of because we're not supposed to be predatory. We're not supposed to be arrogant and um, two-faced and all those kinds of things. So a lot of the unkosher animals have these very, very uh, poor qualities to character. And Hashem is already ahead of the game on that, you know? And so when you think about everything that it takes to produce a piece of kosher meat or, or things like that, it's just kind of like, was this done appropriately? And you should know that the way that we know that and are granted shalom about that is because it has a kosher hexer. That means from the time the animal was selected all the way till it took the ultimate form that we go and purchase it in, that every step has been done according to halakha, which is just, uh, I know it kind of seems like, well, the animal died, but it's also, it was done in the best prescribed way. And then that, that whole fact of the animal died and this is going to sustain me, that should pause. That should give us a pause to be like, wow, someone gave their life to sustain me. And ultimately, when you look at the Corbin note, that is something that needs to permeate and, and penetrate our hearts, turn our hard hearts into flesh. And this is why, you know, when you think about the Mashiach being offered for us, well, if you don't understand the system of the Corbin note, of course, his offering will be looked down upon. It will be taken lightly. You can create a new religion off of it and things like that. But Vayikra gives us the foundation, which is why in Judaism, we teach our children this Sefer of Torah first. And this Sefer of Torah, which is the book of Leviticus, is also known as Torah Kohanim, the Torah of the priests. When we were standing at the mountain and receiving new our new life, becoming new creations, the, the sting of death being removed from us, and we were being made into Hashem's chosen and treasured people, what did he say we are? A kingdom of priests, a royal nation. So all of Yisrael are on one level considered Kohanim. And when you look at the royal priesthood, the, 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 the priests and the royal nation, because this is also referenced in 1 Peter, that it, the Hebrew is Malkut Kohanim, which Malkut has to do with royalty and kingship. And then Kohanim has to do with being a priest one who can intercede, one who offers up the prayers and the offerings. Because here's the thing, when we bring our Corbinot outside of the Pesach offering, the person who actually does the work of offering it up is the Kohen and the Levite. So we're not even hands-on during the, the, the sacrificing part, the slaughter. And what you do with the blood and dashing it around the altar. But as we read about these particular steps of what it, it means to offer it up, 
It's as if we are doing it. So as we read Torah Kohenim, we are literally spiritually walking in our mantle that Hashem gave us, which is so beautiful when you think about the foundation things that are being brought out in this particular chapter. That is first and foremost and how all of the offerings are dealt with. There's a lot of care there. There's making sure this is not acts of brutality. This temple is not a slaughterhouse. This is a house of prayer. And to think about what that means when you put all these different points together, it's kind of like, whoa. You know, so this is another reason why I said what I said with taking our time, even though there's a lot of information, but letting this stuff sink in is because that's what it needs to be as we get ready for the temple. The temple is coming back and we pray sooner than later. And it would be awesome to see it this year. But when we when we enter into it, we have to understand what we're entering into. You know, I think about Noah when he was getting ready to enter into the ark. Hashem had to push him in there. But it was like once he got in there, it's like, what is this place? You have animals that should be completely fighting, like brothers and sisters in the back of a car on a long road trip. And they're all like, oh, hey, how you doing, man? What's going on? You know, some of the animals were able to talk. You know, it was like Shrek and Lion King and stuff. But uh, they weren't fighting. And it's just like, are we there yet? No? Okay, Baruch Hashem, let's play cards or something. I don't know what they did. But it was that, that whole spirit. So could you imagine walking into that? It's like being, even though it was more uh, elaborate than this, it's like being in a zoo, but there being no fences and no glass. And I don't know about you, but being next to a lion, a tiger, and a bear, oh my, I'm out. <laughs> but yet, how long were they in that ark? So, you know, you got to think about all these different things, like think about the atmosphere, if not all the details. And this is why I spent so much time on the drosh this pasture, but think about the music, think about the aroma, think about all of the different sounds you would hear as you enter into the temple. One of the things I did not get to mention is this very little detail known as take off your shoes for your own holy ground. Take off your sandals. Because remember, in the temple, we're all barefoot. Shoes get left outside. So for those individuals who are so used to coming home and taking their shoes off at the door, get you some. You're already acting like your house is a temple. So, I mean, I'm just saying it's like, it's so crazy. Um, but anyway, think about the full picture. Think about the full experience. And this is the other reason why it's so beautiful to, to receive prayer requests about what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, all other parts of the world, all of our mishpaka and extended mishpaka because people that we're praying for who don't even know us, and we're like, yeah, we're going to pray for them. Yeah, we're going to pray for them. Because why? One of our Mishpachah members knows them. And they know that that person needs prayer. And uh, yeah, we so happen to be a house of prayer and Torah study and all sorts of other stuff. And it's just like, look at the unity in that. For once, mankind subconsciously, without even knowing it, is being drawn into this unity, which is, by the way, what it takes to bring the final redemption to its completion. Because the redemption is happening. More and more Jews are flowing into the land. And by the time we reach 50% or more, the next steps of the Geula happen. 
namely the legitimizing of its Sanhedrin, namely the showing up of Eliyahu and Mashiach ben Yosef and all of that. So, I mean, there's a whole lot that is coming into play through the little steps that we're taking right now. And I want to remind you, a few weeks ago, I spoke on this from our Purim Info PDF that one of the main things that happened in the Purim story, all the events, was when Esther said, go assemble the Jews. Do you know before she said that, we were as divided as the world is right now over all kinds of issues. The, the way that we were described by Haman was like, oh, there's a people who don't want to go with the king's uh, culture and all this kind of stuff. And there are people that's supposed to be set apart, by the way. But, you know, they're all dispersed. And underneath that phrase of they're all dispersed, they're all scattered, was also speaking about where we were as a collective body, that we were literally like disassembled. Uh, if you think about a Lego set or some kind of structure and it falls over like a vase gets broken and just shattered pieces everywhere, that was us before the events of Purim took place. And because Esther, who's likened to Mashiach ben Yosef, said, assemble the Jews, the commentary from the uh, Art Scroll 5 Megillot says, the way that we unified and assembled was through prayer and repentance. The crazy, amazing, uh, the, uh, the amazing part about that, yes, the crazy and amazing part about that is it doesn't matter what sect of Judaism you are, what particular halakha you follow, prayer and repentance is something that everybody can do without any arguing. And so if you think about the, the magnitude of saying, hey, can we just recite Tehillim 20, please? Not only for the Jews, but also for the nations. Because, you know, the final redemption is not just for the Jews. It's also for the nations. The nations are going to fall out in this beautiful gradient with the arrival of the Mashiach and the Beit HaMikdash. Everyone basically clicks in just a little closer to Hashem. And maybe even those people who've never looked at Hashem or even thought of Hashem, they're going to begin to realize, oh my gosh, Hashem, like there's a God and he's, he's like here and he transcends. They're going to understand the level of Hashem filling all of creation, but yet being beyond it and surrounding it at all at the same time. People as a whole, all mankind is going to get to that level. Because this is the work of the Mashiach, starting with Mashiach ben Yosef, which is the gathering process, which we've been in for like a while now, and with Mashiach ben David, like the icing on the cake. So all that to say, this is just a, a beautiful thing that people are going to be moved in closer. There's going to be a, a change in the focus. I mean, we're literally going to go from a, I want to just punch you in the face to, man, you and I, we are beloved fellow human beings. You know, the whole phrase of, uh, from the prophecy of beating their swords in the plowshares, that's not just about war because we don't take things super literally and uh, things that are prophesied. 
You also have to understand it's allegorical and metaphorical. And guess what that means? That extends into our interpersonal relationships. People that we're so put out with right now, our heart's going to change towards them and their heart's going to change towards us. And that is an example of beating a sword into a plowshare. It's just kind of like, whoa, that's what we're headed towards. So we cannot take lightly what we did at the beginning of this class tonight, praying, telling 20, shouting out all of those who are in need of healing and things like that. It's, it's deep what we're doing. And yes, there's a lot of learning that has to happen. There's a lot of changes and transformation that we all need, but it's happening. And it's going to start from the quantum and then it's just going to explode on the scene like Ant-Man. <laughs> Sorry, I had to go there because it's like, I don't know what else example to use. But yes, Baruch Hashem, internalize, internalize, internalize. Whoa. May we be able to bring more light into this world even at 70 plus. Ooh, I'm main. Get you some. Side note. When we went to Mitzrayim originally, Yaakov and his children and all of their families, we equaled 70. And because those 70 souls descended into Mitzrayim, those 70 souls became directly connected to the 70 nations. So here's the other thing about what I just mentioned, because we're drawing close to Hashem, we are also by default drawing in the 70 nations. It's as if all those 70 Jewish souls represented one of the nations. And because of that, the nations have a direct connection and attachment to Hashem through Israel. And this is why us being a light to the nations is so important. Because what people may have trouble with getting from Hashem, through us, they'll be able to receive it. This is why it's Zechariah who says they'll grab on to the tzitzit of a Jew. This is why Mashiach ben Yosef, the, pent, the pinnacle Jew, penultimate Jew, quintessential Jew, because he's the Mashiach. That this is why the nation seeing him and finally starting to understand he's Jewish. I think people have understood this before, but like, He's really Jewish. So like that means something different than what it has meant. Like that's so incredible that not only is it Yisrael, but the Mashiach ultimately over all of this drawing all of mankind, which is why when you read about the Mashiach and how he's going to have such a, an effect on every single person, Jew and non-Jew alike, it's just kind of like what kind of man is the Mashiach? is what the sages ultimately say, because it's just kind of like, how are you going to do that? And not to mention the work of the Mashiach, among all the other things he's going to do, is restore us to the level of Adam in the garden before the sin. I mean, like, what? <laughs> anyway, so for those of us who are already connected and following the Mashiach Yeshua, we're already seeing what that's like. I mean, we don't have to take but like 30 seconds, if that, to think about where were we before we knew him. So that is where I want to end on that section of Master Plan on page 67. Uh, the rest of it is amazing. Um, but I want to go to section two. 
because this speaks of education to sensitivity, which is really what the book of Leviticus is supposed to do for us. That not only when it comes to offerings, but when it comes to the human body, and when it comes to our possessions, and when it comes to our fellow human beings, and when it comes to the earth and creation, Leviticus is going to take us all the way through that. I mean, could you like just kind of be like, wow, like from the first parsha in Leviticus until the last parsha in Leviticus, we're going to go through the full gamut of being educated to sensitivity and awareness of the power and all these details that we're going to we're going to be going through. It's it's outrageous. Um, but anyway, page 68 says God's Torah teaches us to refrain from inflicting unnecessary pain on any animal. The kosher slaughtering process is like completely implemented to do this. When the animal is kosherly slaughtered, not only is there a bracha being recited by the person who does the slaughter, but the place in which the slaughtering happens, the intention in which the slaughtering happens, and the whole entire process that uh, ensues after that. When the animal actually gets slaughtered, the blade is so sharp that the way to check the sharpness is you have to use the, th the back of your thumbnail because it's just like that blade has to be so sharp that if you're not careful, you can cut through your fingernail by just like barely doing anything. And so like carefully uh, checking it and making sure that you don't cut yourself in the process. Um, that's how sharp that that particular knife is. And the, the actual vein that is actually slaughtered is the one that puts out the most blood at one time. I know that's kind of a graphic sight, but this is a part of the sacrifice. This is also why it's important, again, what's going on, the actual whole picture, is that whenever we sin or what it takes for us to be brought close to Hashem is a lot of, uh, a lot of pain sometimes. It is a sacrifice, whether we're thanking Hashem or whether we're asking Hashem for forgiveness. On either end of the spectrum, it's still a sacrifice. Because remember, in order for us to be truly thankful, maybe things aren't going so great right now. And we're still going to be called to say Baruch Hashem. You know, even in the midst of darkness and pain, we're still going to be crying out prayers of thanks and gratitude to Hashem. So, but yes, the, the vein puts out all the blood and it's literally like the animal uh, passes out or faints, like it's falling asleep. Which I think is an interesting terminology because when uh, a human being dies, we're considered to be one who has fallen asleep and our soul is extracted from our body. Now, in Tractate Sukha, it actually, um, it's not Tractate Sukha, I apologize. I don't actually know the specific source, but I do know it's connected. It's probably in Handbook of Jewish Thought Volume 2, by the way. Um, I don't want to find it right now because it'll take too much time. But it talks about either your soul can be taken from your body like a strand of hair from a, a bowl of milk or like a, a bear skin from a thorn bush. And so like that's the spectrum as far as the way that goes. 
But anyway, when we look at the fact that the animal basically it's like peacefully falls asleep, there's not a, a, a jolting and like freaking out and panicking and all this kind of stuff. Like when it comes to the slaughterhouses that don't do kosher slaughter, there's tasing involved, there's blunt force trauma involved, probably on the level of roadkill involved, which the quality of the meat from that, I mean, think about that. Talk about education and sensitivity, right? So, but yeah, unnecessary pain. And this is all day at the temple, starting with the morning lamb, concluding with the evening lamb, the afternoon lamb just before sundown. So between the two lambs, which cause all the other offerings into a unity, so that when you're offering up the tamid offering, the, uh, the, con the continuous offering, the morning lamb, the afternoon lamb, which considered one offering, all the other offerings are inside of that. So it's like it encapsulates it. So by default, if you're a part of the morning and afternoon lamb, it's as if you've partaken of every offering that is available. Um, but yes, so it says, and not only physical pain an animal can suffer, mental pain as well. So, you know, and Devorah just mentioned in the chat, peace, peaceful. And I want to remind us that what does Proverbs say about the Torah? All its paths are peace. I mean, if you think about that, all its paths, like normally that's like it brings peace between men. It brings peace to Israel. It brings peace upon the earth. Well, it also means peace during the offering process. I mean, the crazy level and detail that we're reading about right now is blowing my mind. It says it is mental torture for any for an animal to work with fruits or grain, which it would dearly love to taste and to be forcefully prevented from enjoying them. So this is the not muzzling the ox part. This is also what Shaul connected to paying those or at least offering daka to those who are teaching. You know, when the, the Levi'im were scattered all throughout Israel in the 42 cities, the 48 cities, actually, because it included the cities of refuge, they were scattered through all, all Israel. And if they were not on duty in the temple, this is referenced in Parashat Shoftim uh, as well, that the Levi'im, when they were not on temple duty, were traveling throughout all of Israel to the, the specific tribes and villages that may or may not have been able to make Aliyah to the temple at any point during the year, you had a, a levy that would visit your city and give you a Torah lecture, do one of your services like a wedding or you know a funeral or uh, if anyone had any kind of celebration meal or event in their life, a levy would be there and uh, be able to do that service for you. And so there was a level of being able to uh, feed them, room and board, uh, make sure they have what they need for their travels. You know, we even see this with Yeshua when he's sending out the 12. You know, he's like, yeah, don't take stuff with you. Let people welcome you in and all that kind of stuff. So this was uh, crazy that, you know, Shaul actually keyed in on this particular halakha and was like, yeah. So, you know, you got people 
taking of their time and their livelihood to in, educate you and, uh, and to help you with different things in your life. You know, we already see this. Like when you have a person do uh, like a reception or an event, there's like an honorarium. You know, when you have a uh, the wedding singer aspect, you know, some person who sings at your chasuna, which is what we call a wedding in Judaism, a chasuna, which is a conglomeration of chatan and kala. You put chatan and kala together and you get chasuna or katuna, which is chatan kala. So, yeah, so when you have people that do particular things, you know, especially if it's on a large scale, you usually pay those people. You pay your caterers and all that kind of stuff. Well, Shaul was already talking about that, you know, because all of these different communities that existed throughout like uh, Greece at the time, Rome, parts of Turkey, crazy, <laughs> Asia Minor. It's like, yeah, these people are coming through your towns to help you with Torah, you know, and uh, teach you Hebrew and all that kind of stuff, you know, take care of them. Just like when you have your animal working in the field, they're going to get hungry. So take care of them, you know, let them eat while they're working. So um, crazy on the connections. But it says the Torah forbids such sensitivity. You shall not muzzle uh, the ox, which does the threshing. Going on to say that uh, here, I want to read this last sentence in this section where it says, do not forget. So this is at the, the end of section two on page 68 in Master Plan. Do not forget that the child who crudely delights in the suffering of an injured beetle or the anxiety of a harassed animal will soon be numb towards human pain too. Now, my son has been sick and thank you for your prayers. He's slowly recovering and it's a long process, but a part of the caretaking is watching Toy Story part one over and over and over again. Okay, if I have to watch Toy Story again, if I find another snake in my boots, my goodness. <laughs> But Berkeshev, it's it's a part of the love, so much love. <laughs> but yeah, my goodness, in that movie, there's a kid named Sid, who's very vicious, and it's like he he uh, puts a magnifying glass to uh, try to burn Woody's forehead. He's torturing inanimate objects. It's only a matter of time before he tortures animate objects and then move up the, up the ladder. That's the way it works as human beings is that this is why we gotta watch out for the little things because it leads to bigger things. You know, if you're five minutes late all the time to one particular place, that's gonna turn into, well, you know, I'm normally late, whatever, you know, and then you'll have another layer of something set in on top of that. And then it's just like on top of that. And then on top of that, and here it is, Torah's like, listen, we got to take care of the child who thinks it's okay to put a magnifying glass, not only over Woody, but over a beetle. I know many people may not be big beetle fans. I mean, maybe if you're into, uh, we all live in a yellow submarine and Hey Jude and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you're into those kind of beetles, but <laughs> a little musical joke. 
Um, side note, my rabbi, Rabbi Trugman Shlita, is totally into music from that time frame. So it's always so funny when he brings it up in class. And I'm like, did he just say Bob Dylan? <laughs> I'm just like, wait, what? Uh, but anyway, so we got to take care of these little things. This is why when you look at different halakha, halakot, or the different customs that we partake of, like, why do we wash our hands so much? Or why do we say all these brakot all the time? It's like, I'm just going to grab a, a cracker to eat. I'm just going to grab a piece of cheese. And it's like, well, I mean, you don't have to recite the bracha if you don't want to, unless you're okay with stealing from a shim. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, that's what the sages say. If you don't recite a bracha before you eat, it's like you're stealing from a shim because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And saying a brock is like asking Hashem, hey, Abba, may I have so-and-so? But anyway, it's like these little things. So it's like, of course, to go back to what I said earlier is our encouragement. As we're taking our time over these little things, it's going to lead to such powerful, big things over time. And it's going to come out of nowhere. You're going to be like, well, all I've been doing is reading Master Plan. Uh, I got to get... Got to get more time to read more books. And then all of a sudden, you're going to read more books. And because of what you read in Master Plan, you're going to be mind blown. And then if you have like a piece of sentence to share to somebody that makes this crazy connection, because you've been reading Master Plan, they're going to be like, what's wrong with you? It's like, oh, I was just reading on Master Plan, page 68. Don't put magnifying glasses over beetles. Um, but yeah, so that's how it works in Torah. Little things lead to big things. That's what did our Messiah say? <laughs> what is this <laughs> somebody just put love me some bob dylan in the chat so uh but anyway <laughs> so funny talking about my generation okay what was i gonna say i don't even know anymore um yeah so let's go on section three. Oh, i wish i remembered that point um uh, reading master plan oh this is why our mashiach says my goodness he who is faithful in the little things will be faithful in the big things, the weightier things, the greater things. So take care of our little things, you know, whatever mitzvot that you can uh, peacefully observe, do those things. And then once you're kind of like, okay, I can do a little, I can do a little more now. I can lift a little more weight then expand. So You'd be amazed that looking at the greater body of Judaism, how much people are not doing or in the process of beginning to do. So um, not that we need to compare ourselves to people, but I'm just saying like, we should all understand there's more that all of us can do. And like I said before, we all know a lot of things and then we also don't know a lot of things. So that should keep us humble. Bezerat Hashem. Section three, respect for instincts. Now this is cool because animals have instincts and that's their like primary thing. Like if a dog feels like, boy, if you test me, I will bite you. I, my bark will turn to a bite so quick. Boy, you're gonna need a new haircut by the time I get done with you, you know, kind of thing. But we have instincts, but through our conditioning and through us putting good boundaries and healthy boundaries on ourselves, Sometimes those instincts become more secondary than primary, which is another thing that separates us from animals. We don't just operate off instinct. You know, we go, okay, I'm feeling this right now, but should I be feeling this right now? You know, those kinds of things. So 
us stepping back and saying, okay, I understand threatened dog may try to bite me. Let me not just be like dog. I wish you would, but have a little bit more compassion in the situation, which, you know, you're kind of like, I'm, why do I need to let a dog run my life? But if you take the moment to step back, you're operating in a level of sensitivity and education that the Torah actually trains us to have, which will all around make us a more decent person, Bezrat Hashem, because when that person is in the break room or in the lunch room and you feel some type of way about them or they feel some type of way about you, you're not just going to lash out at them and go WWF over the table with a chair. You know, you're going to be like, okay. Okay, I feel like you don't like me right now. I feel like you got some problems with me. And if you want smoke, we can have it like a summertime cookout. Instead of being in that disposition, because you're like, okay, sensitivity to animal instincts, how much more so sensitive to human instincts? Because maybe someone feels threatened by us because they think, um, I don't know, this person knows more than me. They intimidate me. I feel like this person thinks I'm ugly. You know, they think I'm stupid, all this kind of stuff. And they're just kind of like, so since they feel that way about me, then, you know, I'm going to be on the defense, you know? And so, you know, we have to think about all these things, but sometimes it's hard to, because we just get caught up in the tension of the moment, but not if you're getting educated in the sensitivity. And because this is the other reason why when Yeshua was eating with sinners and tax collectors, why would you do this, Mashiach? He's like, well, did you know these sinners and tax collectors have certain circumstances in their lives that are putting them in their current dispositions? Sometimes there are people who are doing things that feel like they have no way out. They may feel like does anybody care about me? Well, no one cares about me because I'm a tax collector. I'm considered one of the most lowest of the lows. People would rather meet a bear than meet me. So I'll just, uh, I'll tax collect it up then. You know, don't just give me your half shekel. I need some other stuff like they did in Egypt. You know, like give me your necklace. Give me what's in your wardrobe, you know, kind of thing. But Yeshua was disarming all of that. What's crazy is letters that, Shaul wrote, he talked about Yeshua disarming, publicly disarming evil and principalities and things like that. Well, even before he was offered up on the tree, he was doing that in his day-to-day -day interaction with human beings. People were like, this guy's from the house of David. Some people thought he was Mashiach. Some people didn't. Some people were like, I wonder. Some people were like, I don't care. Either way, the way Yeshua interacted with people was just kind of like, you're not what I was thinking. I'm looking at the leaders of synagogues right now who, um, this is during that time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak from the, um, with a little artistic license, obviously speak from the perspective of a first century person who was interacting with Yeshua. He's like, I'm looking around. I see the religious leaders, you know, the ones who wrapped those giant tefillin in the street, on the street corners, you know, those ones who are like, oh, I tithe all my spices and herbs, not just my grain, my wine and my oil. I mean, I'm going all the way beyond. I'm such a hussy, you know, I go into the temple 
you know, every day because I never have ritual impurity that keeps me separated. And it's kind of like, well, then how in the world is the relationship between you and your wife? Even though it's not my business, because there is an element of ritual impurity that happens when a husband and a wife um, do their marital intimacy thing. So if you're going to the temple every day and you're a married man, um, bruh, not to be all in your grill, but what is going on? Are you lying or is something going on? You know, we need some counseling. But anyway, sorry to get off into that example. But that's also in Leviticus. Hey, we got a whole Torah portion about that. It's going to get real, real. <laughs> this, this book of Torah, you're going to be like, I don't want to speak about this this week. I'm, I'm just going to warn you now. Orchard of Delights. Uh, it's either Parsha, Tadzria, or Medzora. Just prepare yourself. Don't read this to your children without prepping yourself. Just saying. Orchard of Delights now. I love Rabbi Trugman, but I was like, um, bruh, you, really? This is where we're going? It's like, it's in the Parsha. So just a little heads up. Uh, Parsha Tazria Manzora. It's really real. Um, yeah. So respecting instincts. Let's go to the second paragraph. It goes without saying that, this is on page 69, it goes without saying that these procedures may not be carried out on human beings. It was talking about uh, castration. Uh, so yeah, we don't do that. Uh, no, try to prevent yourself from having uh, children uh, as far as a surgical operation, unless it's like, you know, life or death, dire situation, sleek off. But to just go out and be like, oh, yeah, I don't really need to do this, but I'm going to do it because I want to do it. Uh, yeah, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to do that to animals either, which kind of makes it awkward when you adopt pets through your local city and they go, yeah, we're going to get them fixed and then we'll chip them and tag them and then give them to you. Or you need to make sure they get chipped and tagged and then you can have it. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, yikes. But we're in exile, and um, we can't just go uh, straight mutiny and anarchy on the government. That kind of will get you in a very bad position. So, you know, this is kind of the one of the tragedies of exile is that these types of things have to be um, uh, submitted to. So, yeah, that time where animal adoption is awkward, and you're just like, I don't. I don't know what to do with this. But anyway, um, chapter 20 and chapter 22 also are going to be awkward and master plan. So caution. I don't even know what I'm going to do when we get to those chapters. Probably just going to skip them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's going to get, oh my gosh, boy. Why Leviticus? Why? Por qué? Okay. Sorry. I'm just having my little woes in, in, in public. <laughs> okay. Next sentence, we are when we read of medieval popes who sanctioned the castration of boys for the sake of a special timbre, timbre in the soprano voice, hence the musical term castrato. We note the contempt for sexuality in other civilizations. Castration is considered a contempt for sexuality. It is a demeaning and a defiling of a God-given gift 
to a man and woman who are in Kiddushin, who are married. Wow. Wonder why we have the issues we have today with such the battle of the sexes and all of the, the, the mistreatment of women and even now in this generation, especially the mistreatment of men and why men want to be women and women want to be men. It's kind of like, well, we don't even respect sexuality in the first place. And if you're not married and it's like, you should not be having sex and it's gross, don't be thinking about it. And then if you are married, uh, yeah, it's not, you know, all this kind of stuff, whatever is the gamut. It's like crazy. But the Torah has specific paths that this is supposed to happen when, and through these other little details, we're tearing down mitzvot. We're tearing down verses. We're literally abolishing the Torah. When we think about all of these different things that are taking place and because these things are taking place. And again, being so close to the final geula being complete, the final redemption being done and exile being over, which is such a great thing to think about, kind of gives me some hope in this dark time, you know, but something to look forward to for sure. But my goodness, through this crazy medieval practice and through things that are going on in the world, it's like it's affecting the bigger picture. And it's like all these little details that seem to be unrelated. And here it is that we have media and entertainment just kind of like treating it like it's garbage, it's trash. You know, so-and-so is with so-and-so and now they're divorced and they're with other. Now marriage is kind of like a piece of paper that's floating in the wind, you know, and then you don't have to be married to go ahead and engage in relations with the opposite sex. Oh, don't even stop there. Why don't you just engage in relations with the same sex? What, what does that even matter? Um, so since we're doing that, why not go to the animal kingdom? Why not go to the plant kingdom? Why not just go into the lab and start biologically engineering up stuff to go uh, be intimate with? And it's just like, well, so what's happening is a contempt for sexuality, which is going to lead to insensitivity, which is going to lead people far away from peace and going to lead people to not only disrespect the feeling of animals and instincts of animals but also of other people and ultimately of Hashem godless nations and things like that it all starts from these crazy little extraneous details section three got so real my goodness okay section four because we're done after this wow what a chapter factory farming Okay, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> it seems doubtful from all that has been said whether the Torah would sanction factory farming, which treats animals as machines. Hmm. With apparent insensitivity to their natural needs and instincts, this is a matter for decision by halakhic authorities. So I can tell you right now, if you ask me a question like this, I will ask Rabbi Trugman. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, not not threatening. I'm really being funny, but um, yeah. Okay, that was master plan. Woo! Hopefully everybody's all right. Um, that was that was a that was a section, boy. I tell you what. Okay, so I want to go to this real quick because one of the most 
beautiful things was said in our chats. I'm going to read it to you right now, uh, our prayer request chat. And this is from our uh, Storm Avenger, known as also Shira Shlita. Uh, she put this down. She said, da, 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 I prayed for him and for Yosef this morning and Shmoni Esrei and will continue praying for them. Blee Nether. And, you know, what's really cool is I always talk about how Shmoni Esrei is literally the prayer. And Leah, may she live and be well, also brings this up in the master plan class about how, why does it seem like we're always coming around to the Shimoni Esrei? Like, we're trying to do Musar, and it's like Shimoni Esrei. Studying the Parsha, it's like Shimoni Esrei. <laughs> well, as I brought up in the introduction to the Sadur class, that prayer in the Jewish mind and in all Jewish meaning is the Shimoni Esrei. Everything else that we do outside of the Shemoni Esrei is additional prayer. Because we should know that when we do the Shemoni Esrei, it is particularly uh, when the offerings were offered up. So, and I mentioned this too on Shabbat, like, you know, you, you went in, you brought your, your lamb or your goat or your turtle doves or your grain offering, meal offering. Like when you brought those things, and the Kohen and the Levi would offer it up and do all the necessary prescriptions for the altar service. You didn't just go, all right, turn it in. I'm just going to go kick back now. Because by the way, no one sat in the temple. So you never got to sit down and kick your feet up in the temple. But there's a beautiful video. I'll see if I can dig this up and share this on the thread that talks about there's this little portico out uh, next to the courtyard which was, uh, it was like a little separate covered area. And you could actually go into that area if you needed to take a seat. But outside of that, no sitting. So when Yeshua was sitting in the temple, of course, it could have meant he was sitting over there. But that's not where Torah classes per se took place. Everything really happened out in the courtyard. The altar of offering was there, as well as the altar of musical offering was there because the greatest orchestra in the world and the greatest singers in the world which are the levites they were on another platform called a dukan d-u-c-h-a-n and they were up there and it was about the same level as the altar where the offerings went up which was kind of elevated so you think about uh going to like an opera or something like that and you look at the platforms the singers are on them well, that was done in the temple. So one of the craziest things is the influence that the temple has had, not only on the Jews, but the non-Jews as well throughout the ages. The whole idea of an amphitheater, the whole idea of a choir service, uh, the uh, choir singers and choir robes, by the way, because the Levi'im wore white linen robes. So the original choir robe was a Levite. So I had a little short series I did on an app called Chirp. I don't even know if I can find it anymore, but it was like these little bites that I did every week about music in the temple and the original choir being the Levites. And so being a preacher to the choir was like literally uh, like a person coming in and giving a Torah lecture to a Levite. You know, it's like they're Levites, you know? So the original preacher to the choir was like, 
yeah, I got an Israelite coming up here to teach a, a whole group of Levites a Torah class. It's like, okay. I mean, there may be something that they can pick up nuance, but I mean, the people who are responsible for teaching Israel, you're going to teach them? It's like, well, yeah, you could do that. But anyway, just as far as the connotation of preacher to the choir. But yeah, on that uh, series, there were a lot of beautiful things about how we don't call the days of the week by Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We don't do that as Jews. We actually go first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Shabbat. That's on a basic level. To turn it up a notch, we really call those days first day of Shabbat, second day of Shabbat, third day of Shabbat, fourth day of Shabbat, fifth day of Shabbat, yes, sixth day of Shabbat, aka prep day, whoop, whoop, and Shabbat. So every day of the week has a connotation to Shabbat. Every day of the week is a measurement for how close we are to Shabbat. Notice I said close, because sometimes when you get into Yom Rishon after Habdalah, you're like, Shabbat is so far away. I just had it in my hands and it's gone. You know, smell these spices. Okay, I'm all better now. You know, <laughs> but anyway, so there was a song that was sung specifically for each of these days of Shabbat. That would not only give us the awareness of what time it was, like of the week and what frame of reference when Shabbat is coming, but also aim and a focus for that particular day. And these are called the song of the day. Let me just go ahead and just read this to you before I read what I'm going to read with the help of Hashem. When you go to the song of the day, which is at the end of your prayer service, this is like the final thing that was happening after uh, the morning service. So just before everybody kind of departed, you know, they did the uh, the priestly blessing where the Kohen would actually stand up and do the hand signal uh, that Dr. Spock uh, from uh, Star Trek would actually, he kind of did the hand symbol a little bit. But the song of the day uh, let me go back. I'm on Musaf. Let me, wow. I am way at the back of the Siddur. Okay. Go to the end of morning service. Slowly getting there. Stand by. Shakarich, Mana Esray. There it is. Move the tour from the Ark. There it is. If anyone happens to know the page, please shout it out. But I'm trying to get there as quick as I can. Boom! Page 163. If you go to page 162 in your Sidur, it has the commentary. Check this out. As a part of the morning temple service, the Levites chanted a psalm Psalm, really? Remember this whole thing we've been talking about at Magi and Shano about just, just pray telling, just pray it. You're going through something rough, pray telling. Going through something good, pray telling. Well, guess what? The song of the day was a telling. It was a specific song. Um, and I'm always dumbfounded by this because during King David's life, he was considered rejected. And it's just kind of like he's not even Jewish. So how is he going to be the king of Israel? which later got cleared up, obviously, but 
there was a big chunk of his life where it was just kind of like, yeah, he's absolutely rejected, not legitimate at all. But yet he wrote these songs and they're like deeply integrated into our daily prayer and what is saying at the temple. I'm always dumbfounded by this. But anyway, it says a psalm that was suited to the significance of that particular day of the week. That is from Tamid 7.4. As a memorial to the temple, these psalms have been incorporated into Shakarit, the morning prayers. Talmud, which is Rosh Hashanah 31a, explains how each psalm was appropriate to its respective day. We will note these reasons in the commentary. The introductory sentence is, today is the first day of the week before the coming Sabbath. That is the English of uh, today is the first day of Shabbat, which, by the way, if you want to say the phrase in Hebrew, Hayom Yom, today is the day. And then you would put either Rishon, which is first, Shani, which is second, so on and so forth, and then Ba Shabbat. So Hayom Yom, insert the number of the day, Ba Shabbat. So currently right now, we're going into the fourth day of the week. So during Shakarit, Bezrat Hashem, in the morning, we would recite Hayom Yom, fourth day, Ba Shabbat. So if you want to add a little more Hebrew to your prayer time, there you go. Hayom Yom, day, Ba Shabbat, Ba Shabbat. So it says, this helps fulfill the Torah's command to remember the Sabbath always. That is one of the 613 mitzvot. This is how amazing Torah is. It's not just about what you physically can do, but it's also about what you physically say or what you visually read. You fulfill one mitzvah when you recite this. You fulfill the mitzvah of remember the Shabbat and keep it holy. Man, I'm telling you, it's so deep what we do every single day. Every little thing in our life is so deep. Never forget that. You may feel like you never get to be a Torah scholar, never get to learn all the Hebrew, never get to pray all the prayers or whatever. Like, what are you doing? and search out what you're doing to its depth and it will blow your mind. Not to mention every mitzvah you do directly connects you to Hashem. So all that to say, Yeshua also said that we would be kicked out of synagogues, i.e. rejected as well. That is very, very important to know. Which by the way, if they're gonna kick the Mashiach out of synagogue, what is that really saying about that synagogue? Again, sensitivity would say, well, I can't believe you would do that. How about let's pray for them? How about let's not look down upon them? And how about we do what we're supposed to do? The Mashiach is kicked out of synagogues. Where is he? According to the Talmud, he is sitting with the lepers. Another thing we're going to learn about and the book of Leviticus, what happens to those people? They get sent into, to use today's modern ter ter terminology, quarantine. Who loves quarantine? 
Uh, well, I kind of did because I'm a homebody anyway. And it's just like, if once I'm feeling better, I'm going to read as many books as I can because I can't be around anybody else. So I might as well. And I can watch all the Zooms and the Droshes and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, side note, quarantine, you shouldn't be like all happy about, especially as a Metzora, which is the tech, the more correct term because uh, Za'arat is not leprosy. But anyway, the person is in quarantine, right? So Yeshua sitting with the Metzorim, the people who are considered smitten and afflicted, not only is he in quarantine, but he is at the gates of Rome. Who in the world wants to be at the gates of Rome? Like, this is the, the place that is set up antithetical to Yerushalayim. It says, I know Hashem said the Holy Land, the foundation stone, the temple, supposed to be in Yisrael, in Yerushalayim, Mount Zion. But I tell you what, it should be in Rome. It should be over here in Italy. It should be as far away from the borders of Israel as possible. Well, I mean, it's not as far as possible, but it's like, at least it's not in Israel. Where are many, as it is said anyway, of the temple articles and furnishings? Many of those things that were taken from the temple, the second temple, especially after its destruction. Yes, Devorah, you are correct. You get a golden star. It's from it's in Rome. So much so that you look at the path from Rome to Yerushalayim, apparently, and I don't even know how, how uh, mystical or uh, literal to take this, but there's like a supernatural path that those articles are going to take to get back to the Holy Land. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. Obviously, we have planes and ships and other ways of transportation. But some kind of way, what went to Rome is going to come back to Yerushalayim. So I'm just saying, run that all the way up to what we just said. Yeshua is over at the gates of Rome. And what's at Rome is going to come to Yerushalayim. Okay. So anyway, um, yeah, about that. So if Yeshua is there, where do you think we're going to be? And since he's there, he's bandaging all of his sores one by one. That bandaging the sores one by one is like the repair and the rectification of lost souls, estranged souls to and from Hashem. So every single person who awakens and goes, I want to light candles. I want to hear the shofar. I want to study the Torah. I want to eat kosher. Any of those things, that's one bandage that Yeshua has wound because it says the Mashiach is binding up his sores one at a time, sitting with those who are outcast at the gates of Rome. So I'm just saying we should take really a lot of joy. I think we've been talking about this before, at least in the Mishpacha, that, you know, we want to be in certain areas right now. It's like we, you know, people want to move to Texas. You know, we want to uh, create an Eruv and all that kind of stuff, but we're not in that right now. A lot of us are still all over the globe right now. But while we're where we're at, we need to make sure that we're purposefully investing holiness into that area because Hashem has us there for that reason. Not to say that we shouldn't be striving to all get together and, and do all the other stuff, 
But while we're headed towards that, because we are headed towards that, every little thing we're doing right now is a stepping stone for what's coming. This is why your past sets up your presence, which sets up your future. I think we already know that, but I don't know if we look at it like this. But anyway, what we're doing now is crucial. Every little thing you're learning, every little thing you're sharing, every little whatever you're doing uh, as far as Torah, you're putting that into that particular area. So that piece on the globe is actually beaming up to Hashem and saying, yep, there's my Torah right there. Okay, Baruch Hashem, where else? Oh, okay, cool. And the whole grid just starts lighting up like battleship. So, I mean... And then when we leave that place and get drawn together, we're going to leave a trail of light because people in that area are going to be like, there's something about Judaism or Hebrew. I don't know. I don't even know where I'm getting this from. You ever hear people talk like that? I don't know. For some reason, I just need to ask you about the Old Testament. Where do you think that's coming from? Um, the light warriors that are out and about doing what they're supposed to do, being faithful in the little things. I literally had today, and I was trying to be so funny with this because it got way too serious. I had my coworker, I gave him a Tanakh just a little bit ago. And, you know, he's even been watching some of the Bed Midrash episodes and uh, classes. He said, you know what, Amit? Jerusalem is like God's beloved, treasured, holy city. And if you mess with it, you might as well have gasoline underwear on. I was like, bro, that is a crazy way to put it, but I'm so glad you realize the importance and significance of Jerusalem. He's like, yeah, he's like, man, if you mess with that place, boy, you're just putting yourself in a, in a whole world of trouble. And so I said, yeah, it's kind of like Wakanda. And he goes, really? I'm done with you. I'm done. <laughs> Because, yeah, if you know know about Wakanda and Vibranium, it's like, oh, okay, that's kind of like Jerusalem in the Torah. It's like, oh, it's so special. It can help the whole world. Like, why don't we let it out? No, let's keep it secret until a certain time. You know, because this one time, Jerusalem is going to, like, have the temple on it. And then this beautiful river is going to flow out from Jerusalem to, like, everywhere and bring life to all the, the rivers and uh, oceans and seas that currently have no life, namely, like, the Dead Sea. Uh, and the light from the temple is going to shine out across the whole entire world. So anyway, um, yeah, but anyway, but he got the point. I got the point. And I was like, dude, this is so random. Like out of all the times you want to talk about Jerusalem and how beloved it is to Hashem. Side note, the nations facing Jerusalem is another part of messianic consciousness. Like the arrival of Mashiach is so imminent that people are starting to focus on, oh, yeah, Jerusalem, God. That's that's huge. I mean, there's a lot of tragedies happening in the world right now, but there's also a lot of like groundbreaking, world rocking uh, revelation that's happening. And it's not because people are standing on soapboxes on the corner and having tent revivals. It really is because people are praying, giving staka and doing mitzvot, acts of kindness. That it's happening because of that. So anyway, that's on page 162. So let me share this. All right, share a screen. So this one time I shared this thing called basic 
Judaism course, copyrighted by Rabbi Noah Gradovsky. And this is a guided tour. Let me see if I can turn this off. I started learning how to turn off stuff. Okay, cool. <clears throat> so check this out. So if you haven't seen this, this is available online. And I also downloaded it uh, offline and shared it with everybody because I can't get enough of fundamentals. But on page 19, it talks all about the Shemoni Esrei, which is the, the Amidah. And for some reason, I was about to say the Akidah. But Amidah and Akidah are not far away from um, the way it's spelled as far as the Hebrew letters go. Only got to substitute a few letters and you turn your Amidah into an Akidah. Pretty sure there's some mystical and significant to that, but I did not think about that and put anything together. So I'm going to continue. You can see more in chapters three and four, pages 98 through 102, 112 through 108. I know you're probably already reading that. And there's a beautiful chart on page 22 we're going to look at. But I just want you to know, look at what he says. Essentially, the Amidah is prayer. Again, you want to talk about do you pray every day? It's like, yeah, Shemani Esrei. And just so you should know, the prayer that the Messiah taught us to pray is also like an abbreviated and notated Amidah. So if you run out of time and you're in a pinch, you can also pray that prayer uh, and then pray the Amidah at a later time. Because if you miss the morning Amidah, you can during your uh, Menka time, your afternoon prayer, which happens anytime after noon or the sun reaches its highest apex in the sky going before sundown, Anytime in that time frame, you can pray two Amidas, and that makes up for missing your morning Amidah. And likewise, any other prayer time, the next prayer time, just pray two, and that makes you catch up. Which, if that sounds like another faith system that has little makeups and catch-ups, uh, where do you think they got it from? Okay, anyway, not to be braggadocious, but I'm just saying, I think that's important to know. When we say that a person is obligated to pray three times a day, we mean that person is obligated to recite the Amidah. Because sometimes I hear, oh, yeah, Jew has prayed three times a day, specifically a Jewish man. And it's like, my gosh, how big is this Sidur? Good night. I got to pray all of this every single day three times? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like, no, the Shemoni Esrei, the 18 Brachot. If you want, the 19th one can be included. We at Magan Yashenu leave it optional. Many communities make it not optional. So side note, many of the stringencies to the mitzvot, we at Magan Yashenu don't force upon people. We allow people to do it if they would like. So that would be one of them. Uh, there's a little phrase in the, uh, the Elenu that is also in parentheses that many people who like to take it up a notch, they say this phrase. Uh, it's on page 159. In the English, it says this, for they bow to vanity and emptiness and pray to a God which cannot save. Notice most time when we're singing the Elenu, we never ever say that, which in Ivrit would be, Shehem Mishtakavim Lehevel Barik. We never ever say that phrase. We just go straight to the 
But it's like, well, hey, if you want to say the other phrase, feel free by all means. Um, anyway, just a little halakhic side note. Says uh, each prayer service has an Amidah. I think we already seen that. Originally, there was no set prayer such as the Amidah. Originally, this is like <clears throat> after the Purim story, like around that time with the, the men of the great assembly. Uh, and especially th throughout the second temple service, when it was just kind of like, we just fresh out of Babylon, like we forgot a lot of things. It's been 70 whole years without a temple. Not many people kept studying the Torah and kept studying the temple. A lot of people put down the book of Leviticus while they were in Babylon and started doing Babylonian things. So it's just like when the men of Great of Assembly were literally assembled, we came back, got the second temple. It's like, okay, let's start bringing everybody back to prayer, bring everybody back to temple service. Are we or are we not in that boat right now? Like here we are on the heels of receiving the temple. And it's like, how many people know that there's like a menu for the offerings? Like when you want to bring your Thanksgiving offering and what it takes with the libation and the grain and the salt and all that, it's literally like when you go to a restaurant, we have like, do you want a number five? Do you want a number six? Like you can actually look at the offerings like that to help you group them out so that you know what goes with what. And like I was showing in those pictures of the Humash, it had a picture of the Thanksgiving offering and it basically looked like a lamb burger. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. You know, but anyway, just to say we're, we're kind of in the same boat. <laughs> so a part of this too, like maybe you aren't used to praying like a Jew from a Siddur. Well, one of the things that it would be encouraged to start with is just praying the Shemani Esrei. Obviously, you need to recite the Shema, recite prayers, do any other morning blessings and all that kind of stuff, but really focus your time, your prayer time on the Shemani Esrei. It's literally considered not the beginning of your prayer service until sometime in the middle of Pesuke de Zimra. Because like when you go pray with Minion, it's like the prayer service starts actually a little later in the morning service time. All of your morning blessings and reading of the offerings, all that kind of stuff, that happens before really everyone's praying together. So important note. Um, I can't see if any hands are raised. So if anyone has them, just yell out, um, just as a side note. Um, but anyway, it says, originally there was no set prayer. People simply said their own prayers. Isn't that nice? <laughs> I definitely used to be a person like that. And um, I still am like that where I say my own prayers because learned in the Musar class, shout out to Rambat, may she live and be well, and Leah, may she live and be well. Um, they were talking about how if you're not doing your Shmoney S-Ray and having personal prayer time, they didn't say this, but it was basically like, what are you doing? You know, and then if you are praying your personal prayers, but you're not praying the money S-rate, and it's like, hey, psst, what are you doing? So anyway, uh, yeah, that's what I got from it anyway. So yeah, so we do both. And as Jews, just to let everyone know, we have our own prayers in tandem with the Amidah, which is why I want to get to this sentence. One is welcome and encouraged to add thoughts to the middle blessings of the Amidah, as long as those thoughts stay within the theme of the blessing. So you don't just have to wait 
until you finish your Shemani Esrei to have your personal prayers. You can pray them throughout the middle section. Did you know the Amidah is broken down like this? Oh, let me mention this. Blessing number 16 is a catch-all prayer. All thoughts and prayers can be added there. There are specific times when you're in your Siddur where it has the little circles and the gray boxes. It's like, if you're praying for a sick person, you can do this here. Well, guess what? If you're just like so caught up in prayer and you miss that, when you get to prayer number 16, which is Shema Koleinu Hashem Elokeinu no, that's quite not quite like the Chazan sings it, but I'm just saying, maybe the Chazan can do that song for Shabbat. Oh, I just feel it right now. I just want to go into Shabbat and hear Hillel sing. Hillel, may he live and be well, is amazing at these songs. My goodness. But that's a prayer. That's the prayer number 16, which is the prayer that's all about Hashem hearing our prayers and having mercy upon us. But the Amidah is broken down into the first three blessings and the last three blessings. So the, the Avot, which is the Father's, Geberot, Hashem's might, Kedushah, the holiness prayer. Anytime after those first three, until you get to the prayer for uh, restoring the temple, the Avot prayer and the Thanksgiving prayer and the Shalom prayer, let it loose. Just let it fly. Like as you're reading the prayer, like for instance, let's go to one. Oh, chart on 22. Yes. Right here. Boom. So he beautifully put this like, here you go. Here's what it's like during the week, Shabbat and holidays. And then, oh, Rosh Hashanah, because Rosh Hashanah is so special. Because we got a show for rope. We don't play around. <laughs> we, we don't toot our own horn. We toot Hashem's horn. Okay. Sorry. I just It's the toy story. I mean, it's coming out. You got a prayer in me. Okay, so anyway, once you get into praying for insight, repentance, forgiveness, redemption, healing, blessing the year, and got, man, look at all these prayers. Any of these prayers, like if stuff comes into your mind, just let it fly. I always wonder what Shaul meant. Shaul Hashliach, Paul the Apostle, when he was like, I constantly think of you and mention you in my prayers. Uh, here we go. Prayer four through 15. My gosh. It's like, oh, okay. I get it now, man. You're okay. 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 That's legit. Then even outside of prayer four through 15, here's prayer number 16. Uh, let it fly. Talk to Hashem. Pour your heart out. For instance, let's just do some, let's do some prayer right now. Pray a little bit. Pray for insight, right? So it says, you graciously endow man with wisdom and teach insight to a frail mortal. Hashem, I see it says frail mortal, and I can't help but think this does not just mean just Jews. This means all mankind. You have the ability and you have the graciousness to endow all mankind right now. Hashem, all mankind right now needs this. There needs to be an outpouring of wisdom and insight, especially like we talked tonight, educated, education to sensitivity. Think about what that would be like for Russians and Ukrainians and all the other nations in the world being educated and sensitivity operating in that. Hashem, you graciously endow man with this. Endow us graciously from yourself with wisdom, insight, and discernment. 
Blessed are you, Adonai, gracious giver of wisdom. Hashem, thank you for wisdom. Wisdom flows from you. It flows from your Torah. It is your ability and capacity that you've placed in us to operate in manners that are pleasing in your sight. And I mean, just something like that, for example. So I'm just saying, I mean, we have 18 different menu items to choose from. And if you can't even pray the whole Shimon Esrei, at least pray the first three and the last three or just the first three and, and politely excuse yourself from the presence of Hashem, which is what we do during our three steps. So our three steps forwards and backwards is like going into the presence of the king and bowing out from the presence of the king. It's like we enter in with respect. This is the other thing we have to understand, too. When Mashiach returns, we have to remember he's a king as well, which means we can't just treat him like good old buddy, like Woody and uh, Buzz Lightyear. We can't just do that, you know, and we have to remember entering into his presence and out of his presence has protocol. This is why we're practicing this three times a day. You know, when we go into the temple and when we leave the temple, we don't just turn our back and just walk out of the temple. This is why we already are so uh, accustomed to face the ark when you pray. Don't turn your back on the Torah scroll. All these different things because they're getting us set up for what it's like to be in the presence of the king, be in the temple, and, and things like that. And when we're in Jerusalem, like everything literally is directed to the temple mount. So it's like all that. Uh, yes, that PDF is available on Box. Let me just do it right now. Let me just send it to you. Um, go to Box. Sorry, I'm going to do a live share, everybody. Stand by. Box, basic info. I'm going to put it in the chat uh, here. Let's see. How do I share? Goodness, I should have thought about this before I was all like, yeah, let me share. Oh, how about that? Copy shared link. <laughs> Yay. All right, I'm going to put it here in the chat. Please send this to people. So can everybody see that? Hopefully. Thumbs up. Yes, maybe. No. Or somebody go, holla. Okay, cool. Thanks, Devorah. Told that robot. Okay. So yeah, uh, that link will give you that. And remember, that was page 19 through 22. Again, that whole PDF is, is outrageously uh, amazing. So do understand it. It is, it is quite lengthy, but uh, any of those parts you can go through are amazing. It talks about what shul service is like. Um, I mean, you name it. It has a crazy breakdown of all of the prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Haggai, Ovadia. And it gives you such a beautiful outline of everything. It talks about our Jewish history. This is why we have uh, the writings of the Tanakh to give us the, he uses the term religious, even though we know it, that's not really um, completely encompassing of what it is, but the religious historical accounts of us as the Jewish nation, what it was like for us to get through the time of judges, into the time of kings, into exiles, come back from exile, go back into exile, and all that kind of stuff. Like, 
Uh, it's beautiful, and it talks about that. Babakasha, babakasha. Um, one of the crazy things I love doing is uh, just sharing sources with people. So <clears throat> anything I can do to help, I like to do that. Okay, so there is uh, a statement that Rabbi Trugman Shlita brought up in uh, the post-class discussion for 70 Faces this week. Uh, if you haven't uh, seen that, please let me know if you would like to see it. Uh, you have to be a part of the WhatsApp group or Telegram group. And he sends this out or just go to the Facebook page for Or Kadash under the videos and you can see all the weekly teachings. So he does a Q&A after each class. And there was a, a, a very, very heavy part of the post discussion that talked about evil and tragedy in the world. And we're already keeping in mind those in Ukraine and Russia and all the Jews and non-Jews alike all across the world who are going through things right now. And Psalm 20 is definitely the prayer for that, for sure. But he said, there's a quote from Baal Shem Tov that says, evil is the throne for good. Evil is the throne for good. So like any goodness that comes out in creation can flow out of evil, darkness, and all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, wait, what? So, and he also brought up that, you know, this is one of the things through Mashiach that happens is that he's going to be able to turn all of this darkness and chaos and corruption into the greatest good. And obviously Hashem is going to do that. Yes, that is true. Things tend to get more evil before good prevails. That's true. And if you think about the most beautiful picture of this is Yosef and his brothers. What you intended for evil, Hashem meant for good. And had it not been for the crazy dramatic events between Yosef and his brothers, Egypt would not have been ready for the famine. Neither would the rest of the world. So you want to talk about what can actually come out of pain and sorrow and things like that. This is why it's also important for us to truly face things that hurt us because these things are setting up future circumstances that we cannot fathom. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like, woohoo, let's go rejoice. I mean, well, kind of, because did not Yaakov, aka James, say, call it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials and tribulations of all kinds? He only said that because what did Mashiach Yeshua say? In this world, you will have troubles you have tribulations, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And it's just like, oh, okay. So, I mean, just remembrance, right? So here's the thing. The Mashiach being Yosef is uh, kind of synonymous with evil. So is Memtet, by the way. Uh, one of the, the biggest things I wanted to mention during Parshama's Patim as how Memtet and the rod and the serpent also have a connotation of evil to it. And so do the Sephirot, by the way, which was brought up in Rabbi Trugman's introduction to Kabbalah class, which is why Chaspe Shalom, that people do this, but they take the Sephirot and call them demonic and witchcraft. And they actually get used for demonic things and witchcraft. So all of that, 
But it's so interesting how something meant for good is sometimes used for bad and, and something bad is sometimes used for good. Like this is the reality we set for ourselves. Again, we put ourselves in this disposition. How? Because we said, yeah, let's eat from that tree. Hashem didn't really say, so yeah, let's eat from the tree. And it was like, okay, you, you love good and evil being mixed together. There you go. Okay, so Sukkah 52. I don't know if I need to, I'm going to make this bigger anyway. Okay, <clears throat> Sukkah 52a from the Talmud says, the land will eulogize each family by itself, the family of the house of David, by itself and their wives by themselves. So this is quoting Zechariah 12.12. 12. Here's a lot of things. Feel free to read the footnote in the background if you are able to do that. I just want to mention this little crazy Zohar right here. <clears throat> the decree of the death of the Messiah descendant from Joseph has been nullified. According to <clears throat> Shanae Lukot Habrit, Beit David 151, the period of the Mashiach descendant from Joseph will include the ingathering of exiles and the rebuilding of the temple, but not to a subverting of the natural order. Death and sin will continue to exist. There's another reason why when people say, oh, Yeshua can't be the Mashiach. He didn't bring world peace. Well, remember, Yeshua's Mashiach ben Yosef. Look at all the stuff that's happening when Mashiach ben Yosef comes. And also, according to one decision, the decree of Mashiach having to die is nullified. There's a whole prayer the Arizal instituted that says, uh, during the rebuilding of the temple and David's throne, that whole section of the Shemoni Esrei, uh, pray that Mashiach ben Yosef does not have to die. Well, we know Yeshua was offered up. <clears throat> but the other thing is there's a Mashiach in every generation. So if we don't merit the redemption during whatever generation he's in, he's offered up to death. So, and I know that's kind of crazy and a, a whole nother tangent to get into. So I don't really want to go there right now, but Bezard Hashem later we can, but it doesn't necessarily nullify what Yeshua did. It's just a whole part of Yeshua was offered up uh, not only for the Jews, but also for all mankind. So again, in Judaism, you'll have many different uh, commentaries and resources that have conflicting opinions. Here's one of them. The, the nullification of Mashiach ben Yosef's death, like he doesn't have to die. But then, uh, or Hakim, among many of them say, yeah, the Mashiach ben Yosef is offered up. So also, you should know that we read on Shabbat how Moshe is greater than the Mashiach. But then you read in Midrash Tankuma, Mashiach is greater than Moshe and even the patriarchs. We never hear of Moshe being greater than the patriarchs. Maybe we do, but I haven't read it, which I'm totally okay with if I'm wrong on that. But it's just kind of like, wow, so where, where do we go? <clears throat> but this all happens in study, and the answer is somewhere between the two. And also, you should know that when there's uh, what seemingly is contradicting commentaries, that 
it's usually because one is talking on a certain level and then the other is talking on a different level. So like from, uh, from the four levels of Torah study to like the simple to the mystical. So when you get into things like that, because one of the things I thought about uh, with, with Moshe being greater than the Mashiach, well, Moshe gave us the Torah, but the Mashiach is going to reveal all of what we can't, can't see currently right now in the Torah. So it's not like he's going to bring this whole new revelation to us and like redo Mount Sinai all over again and be like, okay, so last time you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, now I'm going to give you five other books. So on that level, I can see how Moshe is greater than the Mashiach. But that's just one little point. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that because that's been something that's kind of like, okay, can we talk about this? But in time, with lots of study and Hashem's help. Okay, according to Shanae Lukota Breed, the, the period of Mashiach ben Yosef is that. Okay, but the period of the Mashiach descended from David will usher in a new natural order in which death and sin will have no place. O death, where is thy sting? as penned to the Corinthians. So anyway, so it says now, is this matter not a basis for a call of a homer? This is my last point, by the way. So for those of you who've been here since the start of class, um, it says, for if we find in this verse, which refers to the events in the future world, when, as the verse states, they will be occupied with mournful eulogy, <clears throat> And when the evil inclination will have no power over them, yet the Torah said that the men will gather to mourn separately and the women will gather to mourn separately. Then now at the water drawing ceremony, when they are occupied and rejoicing, which naturally leads to frivolousness and the evil inclination has not yet been eradicated and has power over them. Certainly it is necessary to see to it that the sexes do not mingle with each other. So here's the part I wanted to get to. What is the nature of this morning, the eulogy? And uh, it says, Rab Rabbi Dosa and the rabbis disagreed about it. Here's the conflicting opinions again. One said that the eulogy will be for the Mashiach descendant from the tribe of Joseph, who will be killed, who will have to be killed in battle. Which right now, if things escalate to a certain point with all the stuff over in uh, Ukraine, Russia, and that area, it could lead to a potential Mashiach ben Yosef uh, event. So, you know, this is one of the things about one of the possible opportunities of bringing in the final redemption now is so important to understand. It could literally escalate to that level and we can go ahead and end exile and bring the temple. So us doing what we're doing, we're adding uh, lots of momentum and energy to that scenario. So it says, while one said it will be for the evil inclination that will have been killed, i.e. eradicated at the future time. So basically, according to Suga 52a, the mourning is for the Mashiach ben Yosef, or the mourning is for the evil inclination. And obviously we know he who uh, knew no sin became sin for us, which our Yetzirah really prompts us to. 
yeah, so this could be Gog and Magog right now if we want it to be. But I mean, we as humans have to make that conscious decision. And my final uh, resource is Kol Hator. And this is what I want to uh, connect to our Sukkah drop. Because the Mashiach ben Yosef and the evil incarnation and evil being the throne for good. Kol Hator, section 67, says Isaiah 9, 6, David's throne. This refers to Mashiach ben Yosef. So the throne that Mashiach ben David will reign on, obviously, allegorically, is the Mashiach ben Yosef. He establishes the throne and the way that the Mashiach ben David is going to reign, it is through the Mashiach ben Yosef. That's the great setup. All of the ingathering of the exiles, all of the, the process of rebuilding, all of the repentance and everything that is going on, that's through the Mashiach ben Yosef. So we're establishing the throne of David right now. And it says, in the same verse we find, to establish it and sustain it through justice and righteousness. Preceding this verse, the psalm states, for a child has been born to us. By the way, Kohator is attributed to the Vilna Gaon. Just want to point that out. According to the Holy Ari on the blessing, see section 127, there is a great and holy obligation when we say the prayer that we always concentrate on praying that Mashiach ben Yosef will not be killed by the wicked Armalus, which is connected to the whole battle of the Mashiach ben Yosef dying and all that. This is what I was mentioning earlier about the prayer about praying that the Mashiach doesn't have to die, which was referenced by the Zohar via Sukkah 52a. As it says, I will raise the fallen tabernacle of David, Amos 9-11. The fallen Sukkah of David not only is in reference to the temple, but it's in reference to the Mashiach, specifically Mashiach ben Yosef, specifically the throne of David. Wherever the verb is used, it refers to the Mashiach ben Yosef, the whole raising the fallen. There's another tractate of Talmud that says Mashiach is called Barnafli, son of the fallen one, because the Mashiach is destined to die. And also we should know that David has another title attributed to him known as Nafli, the fallen one. So when you say bar Nafli, you're saying son of David, which is Mashiach. David was considered to have no time in this world, but he was given 70 years. One uh, opinion says it was all from David. Another opinion says it was from the patriarchs. So, you know, however you want to look at it, he was given 70 years because he was considered a miscarriage from his birth. He was never going to have any time in this world. And one of the terms used for the one who would be a miscarried, a miscarried one that was born is a nafli, a fallen one. Which if you're thinking Nephilim, it's along those lines as well, as far as in a mystical allegorical meaning. Um, it says, see above 133 about the aspect of my sheaf rose. So raising up uh, a sheaf of grain, uh, the bread that comes from the earth, 
That, that's Mashiach ben Yosef stuff. This idea is also hinted at in the world with a, which is equal to 566, which I don't know what the with A is about, but there's a gematria of 566 for what they're talking about being raised up. The purpose of this work in gathering in the exiles is to establish David's throne and our war against the wicked armless and revealed in the verse, the Lord wages war against Amalek. So when you look at what this is saying, the armless and the Amalek, which by the way, this coming Shabbat is Shabbat Zakor, which is the Shabbat of remembering what Amalek did to us as we get ready for Purim, because Purim is all about being triumphant and victorious over Amalek. And amazingly, we get to do that through our rejoicing, dressing up and feasting, giving gifts to our friends and to the poor. That's how we will defeat Amalek. And ultimately, that culminates in gathering in the exiles and bringing shalom in the world, establishing the throne of David, all sorts of beautiful and amazing things. So with all that being said, we want Mashiach now and may Hashem rescue his people and rescue the whole entire world and graciously endow frail mortals with his insight. Page 141. Or yeah, 142, Slika. Baruchata Adonai Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet. And may everyone triumph over Amalek.